Welcome to this week's podcast from the Equipping Center. We hope you enjoy this message from Pastor Jacob Biswell. We are jumping past uh, chapter 7. If we were to spend time in chapter 7, uh, we'd be reading the census of the first returned exiles. And so we'd read names like Parash and Shepatiah and Pahath Moab and Zakai and Bunai and Asgad and Adiknam. You know, we, we are having a baby and I've been looking at some of these names thinking maybe one of these will work. Hashupa. How about that one? Hashupa. Nefusheshim. Hakapufa. I mean, some of these names, y'all. I am thankful for easier names. Amen, Moses, right? He's saying I can give an amen to that. How about this one? Hashbadanaba. That one's easy to write on the birth certificate. Hashbadanaba. All right. Well, we're in Nehemiah chapter 8. We're going to read uh, verses 1 through uh, right about seven, and then we'll we'll jump into to the rest later. And all the people gathered as one man at the square which was in front of the water gate, and they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. He read from it before the square which was in front of the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium which they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood, and here's those names, Mattatiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Masiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshalem on his left hand. I did it. Praise the Lord. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akab, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. Verse 8, they read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Thank you that it's alive and active. I thank you, Father, that this morning it would be alive to us. That, Father, we'd catch revelation this morning and we would walk out Your Word. I thank You for the anointing that makes preaching easy. In Jesus' name, Amen. I was at the General Assembly for the Pentecostal Church of God this week, Wednesday and Thursday, and I had a great time getting to catch up with some of the missionaries. And um, Brother Parkman, who was a missionary to the Philippines for, I think, some like 50 years. I mean, just... Some of these people, one of the ministers that I knew received a Lifetime Achievement Award. He had been ordained for 60 years in ministry for almost 70 years. I mean, just incredible. Um, But here's one of the stories that Brother Parkman told me this week, and I thought it was great. He said, we had a a new missionary come in uh, to the Philippines and was learning the language and beginning to understand the culture. 
and uh, she had sent him this email, and this is what it said. I heard my pastor announce that we were going to take up an offering to purchase some sin from another developing church. The pastor made this compelling announcement. Their church building is nearly finished, and they are in desperate need of more sin. If you'd like to make a donation toward the purchase of more sin, or if you'd like to go out and buy sin to give them yourself, let us know as soon as possible. If you aren't going to be here next Sunday and would like to leave your donation for sin with us, that would be fine. I know the Lord will bless you for your generous gift towards this project. At that point, I was nearly unable to contain myself. I leaned over and whispered to my friend, so you can actually go out and purchase sin here in the Philippines? What a shame. They don't have enough sin in the church already. Later on, they figured out what was going on. The Cebuano word for tin is the word sin. So they needed to purchase more tin for the roof of the church, but the Cebuano word is sin. Could it be said that they were in sin over their heads? That's the dad joke for the week. My guess is that most of us have plenty of sin to deal with in our lives that we don't need to go purchase more, right? And what you know, this missionary was experiencing in other cultures is very common. Due to the difficulty in understanding a new language, she was faced with some misconceptions. And I think there are many misconceptions when trying to learn a new language. And so too many of us have misconceptions about the word. And that's what we're going to talk about this week. We're going to talk about Nehemiah chapter 8, knowing the word. I think we are in a word famine in our culture in this season. And I want to talk about some of the misconceptions that I think we can have as believers about the Bible. And here's the three that I'll talk about this morning. The first one is it's too confusing to read. How many of you have ever felt like that? That you open up the Bible and it's too confusing to read. I just don't understand it. The second one is it's too boring to study. There's just a whole bunch of names like Pastor Jacob just read. And then the third one is it's impossible to apply. I don't know how to make it work for my life. And those are the three things we're going to talk about this morning because I believe these myths are demolished in Nehemiah chapter 8. But I want to give you kind of a summary of where we've been. We've had some, some breaks in between preaching out of Nehemiah. And so chapter 1, we talked about knowing how to pray. We talked about the importance of prayer and how prayer is the engine of the church. Prayer is the engine of our lives. The second, uh, in chapter two, we talked about how to tackle a tough job. You know, there's, there's a plan that has to be executed. There's a method that often we work out of and, and how to tackle a tough job. We skipped over chapter three because there's a whole bunch of names, but that was all about working well with others. That, you know, one of the keys in church and in our lives is learning how to work with others. Amen. Chapter four, we talked about defeating discouragement. You know, that discouragement is one of the key, one of the key tactics that the enemy uses to try and overcome us. Chapter five, we talked about how to stop strife. We got real practical. You got sin against someone, go fix it. If you've got odd against your brother, go talk to him. And then chapter six, we talked about dealing with distractions. And as I said, we jumped over chapter seven because I'm not reading all those names and reading through the census. But the emphasis shifts in chapter eight as the focal point becomes reinstruction in the rest of the book. It's a return to the word. And we move from rebuilding the city to rebuilding the people. We could talk for, for weeks about 
building programs and 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 what God wants to do through building pledges. And so that's my one little plug. If you have your building pledge, you haven't turned it in, do that. If you haven't given, so into that. But what I want to talk about is rebuilding people. And the way we rebuild our lives is that we have to determine what is the foundation we build upon. And for us as believers, the foundation that we build upon is the Word of God. And as I was saying, I believe we are in a word famine in our culture. I think we've gotten so used to in our social media life, these one-liners that people put out on Facebook that are about 10 miles wide, but half a centimeter thick or deep. And we, we need the depth of the Word. The Word is our foundation. And I want to use these misconceptions that I talked about as an outline this morning. The first myth is that the Bible is too confusing to read. And we'll see that in verses 1 through 8. Instead of being confusing, it's actually a book that you can, that you and I can comprehend. You and I can understand it. The Holy Spirit can give us revelation. The second myth is that the Bible is too dry and boring to study. And we'll look at that in verses 9 through 12. And that third one is that the Bible is impossible to apply. What rev- relevance does the book have in my world today? I've had that conversation with so many people. How, how does this apply to me today? That's an old book written by men. We're going to address that this morning. But I want to take a look at verse 1. When the seventh month, or it says, I'll read it this from, from this translation, all the people gathered as one man at the square which was in the front of the water gate. Actually, I'm going to jump back. I'm so sorry. Jump back to, to Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 74. That's another reason we didn't go through Nehemiah chapter 7, 74 verses. And when the seventh month came, the sons of Israel were in the cities. Then in verse chapter 8, and all the people gathered as one man at the square which was in front of the water gate, and they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. I want to say to you, the Bible is not a magic book that changes us just because we read it. It's not just you open it and read it and it's just all of a sudden going to change you. You've got to have the spirit of life on the inside of you. Unbelievers can pick this up and God can move on them. You know, the Bible says you can't be saved unless the spirit draws you anyways. So it's not some magic book. It's not this, this thing that, that you just open and all of a sudden your life is transformed. It takes eating the Word. Having a relationship with the Word. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was made flesh. It's in this relationship with Jesus that the Word becomes alive to us. God's Word must be understood before it can enter the heart and release its life-changing power. The word understanding is used six times in this chapter which shows that the Bible is not meant to be confusing. It's meant to be understood. It's supposed to be alive to us. It's supposed to be something that speaks to us, that transforms us when we understand. And Ezra was the ideal man to start this camp meeting because that's what they had. They had a camp meeting, a Bible conference, an outdoor gathering. He had come to Jerusalem 14 years before Nehemiah. He was a priest, he was a scholar, and he was a teacher of the law. If we were to jump back into Ezra 7, It gives us an insight in verse 10. It says, For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. He was committed to the personal study of the word. Ezra became acquainted with the word. It became something close and personal to him. 
and then he taught it to others. It's one of my favorite verses because I consider it a personal challenge. I'm going to read it to you again. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. I'm committed to studying this book because I want it to transform me. I want it to be alive and I want to be able to teach it in the right context. I want to be able to understand it so that when I communicate its principles, I can do it with understanding. And I think that's a challenge to every believer is that we would devote ourselves to this word. God in his infinite wisdom decided that he would have men of old write down these words for us that for generations it would transform our lives. God in His infinite wisdom decided on 66 books with however many chapters that we could open up and it could become alive to us through the Spirit that it might transform us, that we might be like Him. And until we get that foundation on the inside of us, we can be tossed, and I think that's where our culture is, by every wind of doctrine. Someone can get up and use these words and and misquote them and twist them. And we see that. We have seen that throughout the generations that people have taken this sacred text and have twisted it for their own application. 150 years ago in our country, this was used to validate slavery. It was used to validate great atrocity. Hitler used this to validate persecuting the Jews. And so if we are not well acquainted with the Word, with understanding, and with the Spirit of God, then we will be off kilter and we will go off track. And so I want to say to you this morning, you can understand the Word. They came together on the first day of the seventh month, which was the Jewish equivalent of our New Year's Day. During this month, the Israelites celebrated what is called the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. It was the perfect time for them to get right with God and make a fresh start. Notice that this seems to be a spontaneous gathering. It just happens. They just gathered together. No public notice was given. No invitations were sent out. They came as one man eager to understand God's Word. And they met before the water gate. Now, Why is that significant? Well, when we understand the context of where they were gathering, it was a life source. They were gathering at a life source. They were coming to understand the word together at a life source. And instead of waiting to hear what Ezra wanted to preach on, they told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law. Like an impatient audience at a concert, they were probably chanting, We want Ezra! We want Ezra! Bring it on! Bring out the book. The book of the law was the Torah, which contains the first five books of Moses. Verse 3 tells us that he started reading at dawn and read until lunch. The people listened to the Word of God for over six hours. We know from verse 18 that this continued for a week. They didn't just sit in their pews. They listened attentively. I think this is where the Pentecostals got it from. We're going to do camp meeting for a week and the preacher's going to preach for six hours. 
There's no greater thrill to a preacher than when people listen alertly to the Word of God. When I was uh, candidating here at the church, so uh, next week will actually be exactly seven years on a Sunday since we became pastors here. And so I remember sitting, there used to be a wall here, some of you remember, and it used to be baby blue. So just, just picture it, baby blue. And when we came in, they invited us into this baby blue room with bright pink tablecloths and a ton of fake flowers. And we sat across the table and they started asking uh, me and Pastor Anna some questions. And uh, one of the, the older gentlemen who was there, he said, we respond real well to biblical preaching. That, that was what he said. And I said, well, I hope I preach biblically. But I wanted to say this morning, in an effort to follow Ezra's example, from now on we're going to have six-hour services beginning on Sunday. I'm just kidding. I am just... The only one who is for it is Pastor Hector. So if you would like to stay beyond, you know, the normal, Pastor Hector will preach the rest. Yes, I am believing that one day, though, there will be at least six hours of church on a Sunday because we have multiple services. In verse 4, we read, Ezra stood high on a wooden platform built for the occasion so they could see and hear him better. They didn't have a sound system. So you've got all of, I mean, we, 74 verses of exiles have now gathered and he's up on a platform and he's got to be able to project loud enough that they can hear him in the back. Now, I've done open air crusades without a sound system. And somehow the Holy Ghost carried my voice because there is no way I could be loud enough that 2,000 people at the back can hear me. So this is an interesting moment for Ezra because he's got to get up and teach the law to a a crowd gathered. So they built this platform. They built it up so they could see and hear him. I I was in uh, New Zealand, oh gosh, a few years ago. No, I'm sorry, it was Australia. And I had got stuck in Sydney for the day. And so it was, it was record high winds. They had never in the history of the Sydney airport canceled every single flight coming and going until I arrived that day. So I was supposed to be in the Gold Coast to preach that night, and I got stuck in Sydney. Well, I'd never been to Australia, so I thought, well, great. I've got 24 hours. I'm going to go explore. And so I, on foot, because Sydney's actually a very walkable city, I got on the, the little bus or the train thing, and I decided, I'm, or I felt the Lord say, I'm going to go look for all the old churches. And so I'm walking, and I, I don't even remember how long. I think it was like 12 hours of walking because I got lost. And so then I couldn't find the train back to where my hotel was, and I couldn't remember where my hotel was. And so I just walked a lot that day. And I was on a journey with the Holy Spirit, and He was giving me prophetic words for Australia, and so I'm writing them down. And, and so I'm, I took a, a big ship out and saw the harbor and all this stuff. But I went into one church. And, and they had a, a little plaque there, and it was 72 steps up to the lectern is, is where the guy would walk up so that he could preach. And it was a huge cathedral, 72 steps up to this lectern. And so I imagine it was something like that for Ezra. Thirteen men stood with Ezra while he read. When Ezra opened the book in verse 5, the people honored God by standing up. They knew this was not just a man speaking. They were about to hear the very word of God. After Ezra praised the great God in verse 6, 
All the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. No one fell asleep in the service. So in the spirit of Ezra, now I'm going to start throwing things if you fall asleep. Everyone listened attently and everyone responded. Then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The people went from sitting to standing. Then they raised their hands. They shouted out their agreement by saying amen. And then they bowed down and they worshiped by putting their faces to the ground. The anticipation of hearing the word in a way that they could understand had totally gripped them. They were locked in. They were focused. And they were ready to hear from their great God. So in this spirit, I want you to all stand as I read from 7 to 18. Now in the church I grew up, we stood every time the Bible was read from. Also, Jeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akab, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kaleida, Azariah, Jehazabad, uh, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. They read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so they understood the reading. Verse 9, The Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go, eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions, and to celebrate a great festival, because they understood the words which had been made known to them. Then on the second day, the heads of the fathers' households of all the people, the priests and the Levites, were gathered to Ezra the scribe that they may gain insight into the words of the law. They found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the sons of Israel should live in booths during the feast of the seventh month. So they proclaimed and circulated a proclamation in all their cities and in Jerusalem saying, Go out to the hills and bring olive branches and wild olive branches, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his own roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. The entire assembly of those who had made who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in them. The sons of Israel had indeed not done so from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun to that day. And there was great rejoicing. He read from the book of the law of God daily from the first day to the last day. And they celebrated the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the ordinance. You can be seated. Verses 7-8, the Levites joined Ezra in helping to instruct the people. They made it clear and gave the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. Their task was twofold. First, they had to translate it. They would take it from the original Hebrew into Aramaic because the language had undergone some changes since the day of Moses. Someone asked me the other day, why do we need new translations of the Bible? Well, it's because our language is continually evolving and we're continually having greater understanding of the language. 
And so it's not that we're trying to change the Word of God, it's that we're trying to understand the Word of God in a greater way. Now, growing up, we were only allowed to use King James. So they had to translate from from Hebrew to Aramaic. Second, they had to spell out the application. They had to teach it so that the listeners would know how to flesh out God's truth in their own lives. They probably mingled with the people and when there was a break in the reading, answered questions and told them how to apply the law. There was both the public proclamation of the word in a large assembly and face-to-face in the interaction of a small group. So myth number one, what was that? It's that the Bible is too confusing to read. What we learned from verses 1-8 through is the Bible is meant to be understood. So I want to give you four hints to help you better comprehend the Word of God. Number one, find a contemporary translation and read a chapter a day. If you, if you understand the King James, great. When I, when I want to read it poetically, I love the these and the thous and shalls and shalt nots and all that. It's great. But my favorite translation, so I'm just speaking for me, is the New American Standard Bible. It is the closest to the Hebrew and Heek. Wow. Someone needs to translate. Hebrew and Greek. Saturate yourself with Scripture. And here's the other thing. Be attentive during the preaching time. Read the passage I'll be speaking on during the week. So take this. Don't just listen to me preach it. Take it home and read it for yourself. So if we're reading Nehemiah chapter 8, go read Nehemiah 7, 8, and 9. Get it in context. Read it. Saturate yourself in the Word. It is not my responsibility to feed you. Let me make that clear. It is my responsibility to point you where to eat. I am not with you seven days a week. And some of you would be a lot skinnier if you only ate one day a week. But some of you are anemic spiritually because you're only eating one day a week. So get in the Word. Saturate yourself with it. So be attentive. Take notes. Bring your Bible. Follow along. And then here's the thing. We're, we're launching small groups again in the fall. So we see two things that have happened here. There was the public proclamation of the Word. We do that on Sundays. But then there's the interaction that took place. The, the eating together, the dining together, the breaking it apart, breaking it down. Help me understand, that happens in a small group. That's in the fellowship. That's in the interaction. We need both. Plug into a small group. Like the Levites with Ezra, our small group leaders are trained to help you better understand the Bible. By the way, if you want to be a small group leader, come see me. Myth number two, the Bible is too boring to study. Have you read this thing? I mean, some of the stories in here are better than an R-rated movie. I heard a pastor once say, and I, I agree with him, if you need more intimacy in your marriage, read Song of Solomon. Now, I don't think Anna would like it if I said her hair was a flock of goats. And that her teeth were like perfectly shorn sheep. I mean, it just, I, I don't think that's our language. But what I'm saying is this thing is amazing. There are so many stories. I can just hear the conversations that are going to happen between husband and wife after this service. It's amazing. And as Ezra read and the small group leaders explained the word, the congregation's first response was one of conviction and grief. See that in verse 9? It convicted them. 
the natural reaction to the word should be conviction. It should come alive to you and be a mirror that you look into and go, dang, I need to change. But see, we have a culture that proof texts and takes little nuggets out of here and uses it just to make everyone feel good. The Lord delights in the prosperity of His people. Well, yeah, but who are His people? Those who are repentant and like Him. So He's not going to prosper you if you're not living like Him. He doesn't delight in the prosperity of the wickedness. So we, we, we need to know that the, the natural reaction to the Word should be conviction. The people wept because they knew they'd been neglecting God's Word. Another reason they were broken up is because their hearts were convicted by what they heard. Romans 3.20 says, Through the law we become conscious of sin. The ministry of Scripture caused them to see the beauty of God and the ugliness of their own hearts. Though weeping is necessary and important, let me say this, it's not the final message of God. Assisted by the Levites, Nehemiah convinced the people to stop mourning. Okay, you've repented. Now start celebrating. All of heaven rejoices when a sinner comes into the kingdom of God. And so, so he, he convinces them because the, the same word that brings conviction and leads to repentance brings joy. For the same word that wounds also heals. Jeremiah 15, 16 says this, When your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight. When your words came, I ate them. New American, your words were found and I ate them and your words became a joy to me and the delight of my heart. For I've been called by your name, Lord God of armies. Psalm 19.8 The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Friends, it is, it is as wrong to mourn when God has forgiven us as it is to rejoice when sin has conquered us. I'm going to say that again. It is as wrong to mourn when God has forgiven us as it is to rejoice when sin has conquered us. Grief for sin and joy in God's forgiveness are not far from each other. The God who convicts of sin is the God of grace and mercy. It isn't enough for us to read the Word or receive the Word as others explain it. We must also rejoice in the Word. There should be a rejoicing in the Word of God. Look at verse 10 and 12. Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people saying, Be still, for this is a sacred day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food, and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. Did you catch that? When people understand the Word of God, it brings them joy. We can have joy because God has found a solution to the problem. Notice how the people are urged to share what they have with others. This is significant in light of what we learned in chapter 5 when the rich were taking advantage of the poor. When we understand God through understanding His Word, we will have a contagious joy. I grew up 
with a bunch of intercessors who thought that you had to look like you were sucking lemons all the time. There was no joy in their salvation. When we understand the Word of God, it should bring a contagious joy. People should look at you and go, what's different about you? What, what, why, why are you so joyful? Even in the midst of circumstances, because I understand His Word. I understand His Word and I rejoice in it. I rejoice in the Word of God. Reverence and rejoicing go together. Philemon 6 challenges us to be active in sharing our faith so that we will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. Do you, do you get that? In the active sharing of your faith, you will become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for the sake of Christ. When you share your faith, you come into full understanding of every good thing God has for you. Isn't that incredible? It's better than some of y'all responding. <laughs> Friends, the Bible and the truths within it are far from dry or boring. If we understand Scripture, we will come to the place of joy. Every effort to make Christianity seem sad, heavy, strict, and boring comes up short. See, people want to think of Christianity as a, a list of rules. Well, I can't do this and I can't do that. When you understand God, you have greater joy than you ever had doing those other things. There is a greater joy in serving Christ. Are there times where it's hard to give up some things? Yeah, of course. Why? Because we're flesh. So you know what you do? Hey, help me get crucified. You get accountable to each other. I'm struggling with this. Help me get on the cross. But when you fully understand it, there is rejoicing. The people who know the story of redemption the best are the most free, the most joyful, and the least likely to keep it to themselves. Let me give you a couple ways to demolish this second myth so that you can rejoice in what you understand from the Bible. Instead of focusing on how you've messed up, draw your attention to what God has done on your behalf. I think. Too often in our, in our charismatic world where inner healing and deliverance is so very important. And let, let me say, I do not negate that. You know me. I love casting out devils. I love getting people free. But I think too often we can become navel gazers. And we get so focused on what's wrong with us, we lose sight of how good God is. And when we lose sight of how good God is, then it just becomes our problems. But when we get our focus back, God and understanding His Word, rejoicing comes and it begins to set us free. If you've confessed it, the Bible says you're forgiven and free. It's time to move on with joy. Isaiah 44.22 is a great verse to treasure if you're struggling with guilt. This is what it says. I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to me for I've redeemed you. If you are struggling with guilt this morning, but you've confessed it, You've repented, let him sweep it away because he's already done it. Let it go. I'm going to break out like Elsa this morning. Look for ways to share what you have with others. I was talking to, to one of the, the ministers up at, at General Assembly and they were talking about 
the best way that they've done outreach because we, we were discussing you know, church growth and you know, all, all those conversations that come up when you're around a whole bunch of pastors. And, and thankfully, this time, it wasn't about how big their church was. It was how effective we can be to our community. So it wasn't about numbers. It was about effectiveness. And, and it was really good. And they were talking about how a lady in their church, she makes 25 sandwiches every single day, just peanut butter and jelly and puts them in her car and then drives around looking for people to give a sandwich to. And from that, she's seen 1,500 people come to know the Lord. 1,500 people have given their lives to Christ because she makes 25 sandwiches a day. She buys cheap rainbow bread and puts some peanut butter and jelly and just drives around the city looking for people to give a sandwich to. And th this woman is in her 80s. So for her, that's all she can do. She doesn't work. She, her kids have all moved away. And so she just makes sandwiches every morning, gets in her little Buick. It's probably a big Buick. And drives around and hands out, car, hands out these sandwiches. And then if she strikes up a conversation with the person, hands him a card. Their church, just from that, has grown by 300 people in the last year, in the middle of COVID. And when they say, well, how'd you hear about the church? The sandwich lady. So she's known in there, and they, they live in the Metroplex, so it's this huge, you know, they're up in Dallas, so it's huge. But just handing out sandwiches. So this week, I'm going to challenge you. Think of someone you know who is a pre-Christian. Okay? You're going to think of them that way. They're a pre-Christian. They're not an unbeliever. They're a pre-Christian. They're just ready for that encounter. And ask God to give you an opportunity this week to share your joy with him or her. Here's the third myth. The Bible is impossible to apply. It's such a myth. This myth says that God is just out to make life miserable for us by giving us things to do which are unattainable. Well, it's certainly true that we can't obey everything in the Bible every single day because we will all fall short of the glory. As we become more like Jesus, it becomes a lot easier to do. But it's, again, not about the list of things. We can live out its truths and principles on a daily basis. In fact, God's Word was given in order to transform our lives. We don't have to make the Bible relevant. It already is. I mean, there's this huge pro progressive woke Christianity of deconstructing and making the Bible relevant. The Bible's relevant. Sin is sin. Hell is hot. Heaven's real. Get saved. It's real. It's relevant. Our challenge is to follow what we know to be true as we ask the Holy Spirit to empower and fill us. James 1, 22-25 reminds us it's not just enough to hearers, but we need to be doers. You see, as we understand the Bible, we'll debunk myth number one, which says it's too confusing to read. As we celebrate with rejoicing, we disarm myth number two, which says it's too boring. We will be ready to obey and destroy myth three, which says it's impossible to apply. Matthew Henry, a great Bible commentator, I, I love some of his stuff. He once wrote, Holy joy is oil to the wheels of our obedience. I'll say that again. Holy joy is oil to the wheels of our obedience. To, to the believer without joy, the will of God is drudgery. But to the believer who is strengthened by the joy of the Lord, the will of God is nourishment. In verses 13 through 18, we see how the Israelites found great joy in their obedience as they paid attention to what they heard. Verse 14 says that they discovered they were not fully following the Lord in all areas. 
While they had celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles at different times in their history, they were supposed to set up booths made out of branches. They were doing part of what God wanted, but they weren't following all the directions. There are times in my life when the problem is that I'm not following the Lord, it's that I'm not following Him completely. And we have to remember that partial obedience is still disobedience. And so this Feast of Tabernacles or this Feast of Booths was a reminder that they were called as people out of Egypt. When they got into the desert, God told them to collect branches and limbs of trees in order to have shelter. And God told them to do this every year, even when they had homes to dwell in. They were to do this as a reminder. God told them to live in shacks for a week. They were to go out, fetch some branches and sticks and make booths for their families to live in. They may have wondered why this was so important, especially since the wall was now complete. Can you imagine Sanballat and Tobiah looking over at them? They finished the wall. Now they're living in shacks. This doesn't... They fought so hard to finish this wall, but it was a reminder of what God had done. They made fun of the wall's construction. Now the people were building shacks. These little lean-tos were scattered all over Jerusalem. But there were three main purposes for this festival. It was a time for looking back and remembering the nation's 40 years of wandering in the wilderness when the people were homeless and lived in temporary shelters. It helped them remember where they had come from and how far God had brought them. This fall festival, if you will, maybe that's what we should do this year. Just put a bunch of shacks out here. We've got the Grand Canyon. We could say we're camping out. (laughs) Spending time in the desert. Which is why Pastor Hector wants to talk to the men after church. But it was a time to remember. The Feast of Tabernacles was also an occasion for looking ahead. These believers may have been tempted to get comfortable with their new city and their new homes. But the Word of God says, remember, your home is not in this world. You are always going to be pilgrims here. Your home is in heaven. After the walls were up, God wanted to make sure they didn't count on the walls, but instead counted on Him. We need that reminder. Don't sink your roots too deep into this world because our true home is heaven. As the people applied God's truth, they did it with an attitude of joy. Look at verse 17. It says, And their joy was very great. Help me preach, Moses. When God gives you insight, no matter how strange or difficult it appears to be, cultivate an attitude of complete commitment and unreserved obedience. When you obey Him, you will have the deep satisfaction that you are doing the right thing, no matter how hard it is. If we are truly people of the book, we'll live by the book. Let me suggest three things that will help you develop an application orientation to the Word of God. The Bible is not impossible to apply if you can obey it. First, pray and ask God for personal transformation as you read and understand the Bible. Whenever I open this up, Listen, I I don't really study for sermons, if I'm going to be completely honest. I study for myself and sermons come out of that. Because I I don't want to just study just so I can preach to you. I want to study so I can be transformed. So as I'm studying during the week and as I'm reading, God had me in Nehemiah. I didn't think I was going to preach out of Nehemiah, to be honest. I was reading Nehemiah for myself. And then God began to speak to me out of Nehemiah for the church. And so... I always ask, God, reveal what it is you want me to do as a result of what I've read. 
Avoid the temptation to just study the Bible for compiling information as the only goal. Expect to hear something that God wants you to apply. Expect it to be alive to you. When God reveals something to you, don't put it off. Don't bargain with God. Don't go halfway. Don't settle for spiritual mediocrity. Determine to be obedient. And then ask someone to hold you accountable. When you know what God wants you to do and you're not sure if you're going to be able to do it on your own, ask for some help. I want to start closing out this message by first addressing those of you who are believers. In every genuine revival in history, there have been two major thrusts. Proclamation and preaching of the word and responsive mobilization of God's people. Mobilization. Mobilization. Translator. As you have listened to God's word this morning, some of you are ready to be renewed. You want to respond because you know you need to be personally revived. So easily to sleep to slip, isn't it? Not yet. I'll tell you when. Good job, Amber. I said the word close. Our natural tendency is to head south spiritually. Some of you have lost your joy and feel a bit dry. You can relate to the psalmist when he asked in Psalm 85, 6, will you not revive us again? Your people may rejoice in you. Some of you need to return to your joy to return to the joy of your salvation. There's a town in Canada called Wabash. I'm sure I'm saying it wrong. It was completely isolated for many years. They cut a road through the wilderness to reach it. It now has one road leading into it and thus one road leading out. If someone would travel the eight hours it would take to get to Wabash, there's only one way they could leave. That's by turning around. Some of you... You've been spending too much time in a town called joylessness. Because with this town, there's only one way out, a road built by God Himself. In order to take that road, one must turn around. Are you ready to turn around? If so, commit to understand, rejoice, and obey the Word of God. My second invitation is for those of you who have not yet put your full faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sin. You have no need to purchase more sin. You've got plenty of it already. The Bible says that each of us are stained by sin and because of that, we've been separated from God. Jesus, when He died on the cross, paid the price for our sin so that we could have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. This week while I was up at convention, I was having uh, coffee with someone. Well, I wasn't drinking coffee. Actually, I had my first cup of coffee this week on my way back from convention because I was so tired. And no headaches, praise the Lord. But anyways... That's an aside. I got distracted. I was thinking about coffee and how great coffee is. But as we were getting ready to leave uh, from, from having, having what we were drinking, my friend went into pain. They said, oh no, it's already taken care of. And I want to say to you, it's already taken care of. He's already paid the bill. I didn't do anything to deserve them to pay the bill. We were just sitting out there at 11 o'clock at night having something to drink. That's exactly what Jesus has done for you. He's paid your sin tab because of how much He loves you. All you have to do is accept His payment and receive Him into your life. But it takes a response on your behalf. Max Lucado said this, There are a thousand steps between God and us, and God will take 999 of those. You just have to take that last step towards Him. Are you ready this morning to take that final step? You see, if you want spiritual renewal, 
In your life, you first need to be regenerated. Just as Nehemiah listed a bunch of names in chapter 7, which proved who the true believers were, so there is another book that is full of names. It's called the Lamb's Book of Life. Is your name in it? Are you ready to take the step you need to take? I want to give you the opportunity right now to respond to God's Word. If you're a believer and you need revival, I invite you to come forward. If you need that this morning, I want you to come forward this morning. If you need to get saved this morning, you want to give your life to Jesus, I invite you to come forward. Someone has said this about repentance. If we put off repentance another day, we have one more day to repent of and one less day to repent in. So if that's you this morning, if you want prayer this morning, I want you to come. As I close this morning, we're going to play that in just a second. I want to read this to you. It was a bright Sunday morning in 28th century London, but Robert Robinson's mood was anything but sunny. All along the street, there were people hurrying to church. But in the midst of the crowd, Robinson was a lonely man. The sound of church bells reminded him of years past when his faith in God was strong and the church was an integral part of his life. It had been years since he had set foot in a church, years of wandering and disillusionment and gradual defection from the God he once loved. That love for God, once fiery and passionate, had slowly burned out within him, leaving him dark and cold inside. Robinson <clears throat> heard the clip-clop, clip-clop of a horse-drawn cab approaching behind him. Turning, he lifted his hand to hail the driver, but then he saw that the cab was occupied by a young woman dressed in her Sunday best. He waved the driver on, but the woman in the carriage ordered the carriage to be stopped. Sir, I'd be happy to share this carriage with you, she said to Robinson. Are you going to church? Robinson was about to decline, but then he paused. Yes, he said at last, I'm going to church. He stepped into the carriage and sat down beside the young woman. As the carriage rolled forward, Robert Robinson and the woman exchanged introductions. There was a flash of recognition in her eyes when he stated his name. That's an interesting coincidence, she said, reaching into her purse. She withdrew a small book of poems, opened it to a ribbon bookmark, and handed the book to him. I was just reading a verse by a poet named Robert Robinson. Could it be? He took the book, nodding. Yes, I wrote these words years ago. Oh, how wonderful, she exclaimed. Imagine I'm sharing a carriage with the author's very lines. But Robinson barely heard her. He was absorbed in reading the words. They were words that would one day be set to music and become a great hymn of faith familiar to generations of Christians. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. His eyes slipped to the bottom of the page where he read, Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. He could barely read the last few lines through the tears that brimmed in his eyes. I wrote these words and I've lived these words, prone to wonder, prone to the God, prone to leave the God I love. The woman suddenly understood. You also wrote, here's my heart, oh take and seal it. You can offer your heart again to God. It's not too late. It wasn't too late for Robert Robinson. In that moment, he turned his heart back to God walked with him the rest of his days. Thank you for listening to this week's message. To stay connected, follow us on Instagram or Facebook or visit www.equippingcenter.us.